this year is a year of personal discipleship, and uh, it's something which the diocese is engaged in, the bishop has encouraged, but it's also something which we've asked the whole of Singapore, the churches in Singapore, to consider after last year being the year of proclamation. And uh, because of that, as we started looking at the issue of discipleship, you know, in um, uh, former days, especially in the early church, uh, uh, with the church fathers, discipleship was often known as catechesis. And it was basically the way in which you instruct and you bring up uh, children in the ways of the Lord. And in catechesis, there were three things that you would teach. Number one, Ten Commandments. Number two, the Apostles' Creed. And number three, the Lord's Prayer. All three are important and essential to forming Christians to understand how we stand against the stream of culture, how Christianity is countercultural and, and, and really, you know, doesn't follow the ways of the world. Um, and because of that, I thought about it and I wanted to do a series on the Ten Commandments. I was debating, do we do it just through Lent, you know, and there's only five weeks, so like try and do two commandments each week, or should we take our time and go through the commandments? And so I elected to take our time to go through the commandments, and we're starting today a series called Perfect Ten. Why Perfect Ten? You get to it as we go through the sermon. But it's a series based on the Ten Commandments. And certainly, you know, the commandments sort of go against the stream go against the grain of culture. Now, I've written up a short introduction uh, found in your bulletin. I hope you take it back and read it. If you don't want to take paper, you can find it on our website under the blog, uh, the pastor writes. <clears throat> but it's, uh, uh, it's I, something I hope you'll read because, you know, I point out that it is quite countercultural to talk about thou shall, thou shall not. Is not the way people like to think about it. In fact, uh, Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams, said this, there are no rules, just follow your heart. And that seems to be the order of the day, right? Uh, People are trying to cast off all the old ways of doing things. They want to forge a new way. And certainly, when we come to the commandments, uh, it seems a little bit archaic, seems a little bit out of sync, but I believe it has great relevance to us, not just in this day and age, but for all Uh, uh, eternity, or at least certainly on this side of eternity, for all of life. But just let me start uh, on a brief note about the numbering of the commandments, because I know some of you are savvy and you will start googling, and then you'll discover that different Christian traditions, and even the Hebrew tradition, number the commandments differently. There's no question that there are ten. How do you number it differs based on your tradition. The Jewish number it one way, the Lutherans follow the Augustinian uh, uh, means of numbering, and the Roman Catholics sort of follow that as well. But we, are, as Anglicans, are very much um, number it in the same way that the uh, Re- Reformed do it. And it's actually based on the Septuagint, the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And uh, we follow, you know, the uh, service book and how you number it. It doesn't matter because you cover all the commandments anyway. No matter how you number it, it's, it's still there. But I want us to take some time to go through it and to examine what it means and how it applies to our lives. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it begins, And God spoke all these words, saying, and then continue into the commandments. 
And so, essentially, the commandments were God speaking, his, his revealing himself to his people. You know, you realize before this in Exodus, God only spoke to Moses. And then Moses would speak to the people. God never spoke to the people directly until you get to this part in Exodus 20. That God speaks directly to them. In fact, in Deuteronomy, where Moses reminds them of the law again, that's what Deuteronomy means, the second uh, uh, reading of the law, so to speak. Uh, He said this, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of fire. And this was God revealing himself directly to the people. You know, of course, if you've read your Old Testament, that what happened was then God put the commandments on two tablets. And these tablets, the uh, people kept. And these tablets were actually put into the Ark of the Covenant. Right? And if you read through the Old Testament, you know that the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with his people. And they would carry it in the battle and, 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 you know, all about, you know, about how, you know, someone unauthorized touched it and was struck dead because of the holiness of God and God's presence. And it was there in the tabernacle. And so we see that there is no difference between his word and who he is. That it is a revelation of himself. And what did God reveal? He revealed this. I and the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We see this part where he says, I am the Lord your God. Really as a prologue to the uh, uh, Ten Commandments, some put it as part of the commandments. It doesn't matter how you number it, but it is certainly uh, uh, there. And you know what you see in this? That God gave the commandments after He had delivered His people. After He had brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery and delivered them into the promised land. Or not quite there yet. They had to get there because of their disobedience. You know, they spent years wandering in the wilderness. But still, the point is this, that God made a decision for His people. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. In other words, the commandments were never given so that you could uh, earn your righteousness before God, to earn His favor, to earn His deliverance. He delivered first, and then He issued the commandments. It's, It's something given to those of us who are redeemed, who are saved, who are brought out of uh, darkness into His light. You know, of course, the Passover and, and that deliverance is a type of what Jesus then eventually did. And so, It's important for us to understand that. But let's look at specifically what he says. And this is his word to the people. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. And this is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What's a god? You know, uh, all of us may have different ways of thinking about God. But what is a god? Martin Luther in his large catechism, in instructing the people of God, unpacked it this way. He said this, A God is that which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe Him with our whole heart. 
So God is someone whom you trust and believe with your whole heart. And he goes on further to elaborate. He says, see to it that you let me alone be your God. Never seek another. In other words, that is, whatever you lack of good things, expect it of me. And look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me. That means come to me. Right? Literally, if you want, and you're on your knees, crawl to me if you have to. And cling to me because I'm the one who will help. I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only let not your heart cleave to or rest in any other. That is who a God is. And I know I'm looking across the room and as you read this, you say, yes, amen. We will have no other gods. But wait, stop and think about this. Do you realize that Israel struggled throughout their history to obey this very first command? For example, in uh, Second Kings, which isn't all that far removed, right, uh, in, in, in their history, God had to say to the people of Israel, the Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them. Why did he have to give this commandment and this reminder again? Quite obviously because they did run after other gods. They did forget who their God is. That they continued to do it. And later on, we know, of course, the prophets in the exile, Jeremiah, for example, says in uh, Jeremiah 25, 6, do not go after other gods. And he repeats himself in chapter 35, don't go after other gods and serve them. And that is the history of the people of God in the Old Testament. But wait, New Testament was not all that different. It just took on a different form. That's where our gospel reading comes in. Matthew 19, you know, is of course that story of the rich young uh, man. And how he had come to Jesus, recognizing that Jesus was someone sent of God, and asking him, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, you know, obey the commandments. And he says, I've done them all. And Jesus replied in this way. He says, if you want to be perfect... Go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven Then come follow me. And what was his response? The young man heard this. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You know, this is Jesus, right? He reads the subtext of the question and he understands the issue. He listed all the commandments. Actually, it wasn't exhaustive, his list, but he was basically saying, there, obey the perfect law of God, and then you will be perfect. Obey it perfectly. But this young man still had another God in his life, and in this case, it was his possessions. This is a case of which his possessions possessed him. That there was another God operating in his life. 
You know, this week I was reading the news and it's always wonderful when your different passions come together in one news story. So forgive me for those of you, you know, I geek out a little bit. This is uh, an Instagram story of a footballer, a famous professional footballer getting baptized. Uh, and uh, um, his name's uh, Roberto Firmino from Liverpool, of course. And um, he posted his, his baptism. This is after the baptism, the one on the... Uh, far right is the goalkeeper, who's also Brazilian, and the middle is him, and then the pastor is on the left. And this pool is his own pool. I mean, he's super filthy rich, right, because he's a professional footballer. But as he posted on his uh, uh, Instagram, it's in Brazilian, but if you read news stories, they translate it for you. He put this verse, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And, you know, it's wonderful to see a baptism like that. A person who's given his life to Christ and, you know, he came up, you know, uh, his, his wife was crying. Uh, Allison was crying also, his, his, his teammate, the goalie. And it was a wonderful thing. And we know this, that as we are born uh, uh, of water, as we are baptized and we come into the, the kingdom of God, we are new creations. But we also know that the old person continues to live, right? Then uh, this is the insight that Martin Luther had. He used this uh, Latin term, similiustus et peccato, which means we are simultaneously justified and a sinner. We are at the same time saint and sinner, that we still struggle. This is the witness of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. You remember that? The good that I ought to do, I don't do. That which I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me, you know, from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am, he points out. And he uh, reiterates. And so there is always this ongoing work in which the old you continues to have uh, sway in your life, even as you have become the new you. So these two yous are at work. And so when we think of other gods, you know, Martin Luther makes the illustration and he talks about this. One of the clearest other gods in many people's lives, not all, not all of us, but many, is the god Mammon or money. And you know, that was also Jesus' concern, right? He would point out to the disciples, you cannot serve God and Mammon. You either love one or you hate the other. And this is certainly a, 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 another god that operates. Now, hear me clearly. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is a good thing. Money uh, can be a real gift from God, you know. As we see our building goes up, I'm so glad that we have money. And the, the Lord has given it to you and you've given it freely uh, to build what the Lord has called us to build. So don't hear me wrongly. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with money. The Bible never condemns money in and of itself. What it says is the love of money is the root of all evil. It is our attitude towards wealth that's the problem. So the illustration that, that uh, Luther takes is this. He talks about the fact how the old self, once it gets a hold of some money, you know, it begins to think to itself, you know, I wish I had a lot of it. And you're thinking to yourself, I would be somebody if I have enough money. Or, you know, I will buy what I want when I want. And certainly you would think, uh, if I have enough money, I can solve any problem I may encounter. And that's how a lot of people live their lives. That's true. 
And they may say to themselves, I can buy happiness, even if it's for a little while, you know. I can make myself happy if I have just enough. But I've met enough people in this world, you know, uh, in, in my various capacities of life to tell you that that sort of thinking, eventually, it's no different from this rich young man. That the things or the wealth that you have can begin to possess you. Because you see, you start to think about it. You obsess over it, how to get it, how to save it, how to count it, how to protect it, and how to acquire more of it. And that's all you think about. But you realize, of course, it's not just rich people who may be uh, prone to the God of mammon. Even poor people are. Look what Luther says in his own words. He says this, He who has money and possessions feels secure and is joyful and undismayed as though he were sitting in the midst of paradise. On the other hand, he who has none, no money, no possessions, doubts and is despondent as though he knew no God. Right? And the anxiety overwhelms them they, they, as if God is not there to take care of them or that God doesn't exist in their life. For very few are to be found who are of good cheer and who neither mourn nor complain if they have not mammon. This care and desire for money sticks and clings to our nature even to the grave. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, not just with money, there are many, many gods that we believe and trust in, that we cling to. If it's not money, some of us, it's our intellect, our education. We believe if I have just the right degree, or I get the right certification, or I get the right uh, institution, you know, I, I get admitted to the right university or whatever else it may be, that's it. My, 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 my security is uh, set. I am sure I can get a good career and good job. Or so others would uh, uh, place their hope and their trust in their looks. You know, and they work out. Not that there's anything with working out, all right? You know, but, you know, to sometimes the exclusion and they obsess over it. How they look, how they appear. Or it's position or prestige. It could be our children or our families. It could be all kinds of things that become gods in our life. Whatever we trust and believe in and lean on wholly, that is our God. And so the Lord gives the law because the law kills us, rids us of this self-deception. You know, that's why later on in that passage in Exodus, the people of God says, oh, please, we don't want to hear God because when we hear God speak, He kills us. That's what it means. Because He strips off any sort of pretense we may have. You see, it says if you must be perfect, you need to sell all you have. And then again, it's repeated in Matthew's Gospel where the Sermon on the Mount you know, at some point I'll do a series on the Sermon on the Mount. You understand that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus reiterating what God spoke on that first mountain, right? When He gave the law in the Ten Commandments, He continues to 
uh, reiterate in the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And how does he fulfill it? He points out that if you are to be perfect, you must be not just perfect in your own mind or to your own standard. Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you want to earn your eternal life, that is the only standard there is. Right? And that's why at the end of the day in Galatians, Paul points out, so the law is given to us is put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith and not by works. You see, ultimately, folks, the law isn't doable, not in the way that we can do it perfectly. It's given to us because the law is meant to restrain us from our sinful impulses, to stop us from crossing boundaries. The law is good, holy and righteous, right? It's, it's, it's clear from Romans 7, and I, I talk about that in my pastor rights article, but certainly the law has no power to change our hearts. It is not able to make us do what it commands us to do. You know, it's it's uh, illustration this morning. I was talking because I told a children's sermon and I was talking about rules and I used the uh, illustration of rules that you have in school. You know, you go to school and there are rules and there are laws that are written. Why? Not necessarily to change the hearts of the children, but to prevent them from running wild so that they can sit and they can learn and, you know, that they will be changed as they begin to learn and grow in that environment. And in some ways, that's sort of what is happening with the law of God. See, it leads us to despair of our self-justification. But for us to begin to understand what it is He is calling us to, I said it in my article, it says that the ultimate purpose of the law in the life of sinners like us is to condemn all our attempts at living self-sufficiently apart from the grace of God which is a pretense, a fatally flawed edifice built upon a false humility. So the law points out that we are in a rebellion against the kindness and generosity of God. As the Lutheran theologian Mark Mattis says, the law causes sinners to despair of themselves and so leads them to find no other recourse for salvation or wholeness other than the mercy granted to them in Jesus Christ. So the law shows us who we truly are, and it points us to Christ, which then is my second word. And I didn't introduce, and I talk about this, that God's word, you know, comes to us in, in, in two forms. It comes to us in the law, but it also comes to us in the gospel. And this is the point I want to make. And we go back again to Exodus 2, uh, 20 verse 2, where G, uh, God said to his people, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This was God's decision for His people. He said, I am for you. I am the Lord your God. I am your God. Paul understood this, and later on, when he wrote his letter to the Romans, in Romans 8, verse... Oops, how did I get there? Okay, sorry. Romans 8, uh, verse 31, we know this verse well, and we claim it for ourselves. If God is for us, 
who can be against us? And he goes on and he reiterates, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because God is for us. And this is verse 38, right? That nothing can separate us from the love of God. But between 31 and 38, the key is in verse 32. He, that is God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? See, if God, a God is the one in whom you trust and believe, What God did for us in Jesus, where He gave His Son, His only begotten Son, because He loved us, that we will not perish but have eternal life. This is the God that we are called to have faith and trust in. This is the God who calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that's where the reading in the epistle comes in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the word of the gospel. It's the word of grace that God gives us. But it's totally countercultural because later on in the passage, you know, the, 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 the word of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and it is folly to the Greeks. Doesn't, you know, it doesn't find its place within Jewish culture because how could the Messiah be cursed? It's a stumbling block to them. This can't be the Messiah because he hung on a tree as a curse. But of course, now we understand that he was a curse for us. He bore the curse upon himself so that we may be set free, so that we may find uh, eternal life in God. But it is also folly to the Greeks because it's not something you work out yourself. But it's something He gives to us freely as a gift. It does not compute, does not make sense. I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther talked about this as the... uh, Um, righteousness that all of us need to have first commandment righteousness. His point was that you break any of the other commandments, you ultimately break this first one. And all the other commandments, when you break it, it's because you don't believe that He is your God. Think about it, right? You steal because you don't believe God can provide. You lie because you don't believe God can vindicate you. You try to protect yourself because you don't believe God can protect you. You don't believe His Word. So the whole sum of the law and the whole sum of the gospel is really in this first command. Luther says, where the heart is right with God, and this commandment is kept, fulfillment of all the others will follow of its own accord. Faith and trust requires the whole person. The sum of all our fears, the sum of all our loves, requires all of us. That's why Jesus reminded us that we are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. All of you. Not just some of you. 
And I was telling the leaders in our uh, leaders' retreat, you know, this year as a year of discipleship really is uh, a response to something that Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. And I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago as well. And I'm going to repeat it because this is His call to us as disciples. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I'm not burying my head in the sand and thinking, you know, obeying the Ten Commandments is going to be an easy thing in our life. It's not. It requires us to be willing to hear this call and to lay down our burdens before Him, lay down our gods before Him and follow Him wholeheartedly and fully. I want to share with you a story which I, um, I, I knew about some time ago, but yesterday I was reminded of it because Salt and Light, which is a wonderful uh, website that's um, part of the marketplace ministry of uh, Love Singapore, uh, put up a story of a very good friend of mine named Andrew Tay. He uh, was with me in junior college. I knew him when he came to know Christ. My best friend at the time shared Christ with him. We were all on the rugby team together and he accepted Christ, came to our church, grew up in our church, became a youth leader, went with me and planted the church, Light of Christ. And uh, because when I became vicar, I made him my first vicar's warden. He's still vicar's warden to this day in Light of Christ. But he tells the story. He was a businessman working in the shipping industry. It was a family business which he eventually took off and went out on his own and was successful in his own right. But, you know, he went through a, a series of, of things in his life which really the Lord began to uh, work. Long story short, you can read the article for yourself if you want to know the whole story. I'm going to cut it short because we don't have much time. But 2014... Someone said to him, oh, you look like a pastor. He was not able to uh, get any business done. And he's gone through this before because he's been a businessman all his life. There are always ups and downs. You know, there are times when things are going well and you make sure you save up and you keep you know, money aside. And then when it's a bad cycle, you just ride it out. And you know, each time the Lord always delivered and brought him through it. He was telling of a time in which, you know, he'd renovated his house and then suddenly he realized he only had 10000 in his <laughs> bank account. And then suddenly one business deal closed and he replenished his entire uh, savings, you know, and it, it was like that. But he was going through really lean times. And he found himself at a prayer meeting. And his pastor, whom most of you know, Pastor William Tham, <laughs> said to him, Hi, how are you doing? You know, a very innocuous greeting, right? And because he was going through that time of stress, he suddenly broke into tears. Just broke down. He couldn't stop crying. William brought him into the office and sat down with him and he poured out his tale of how, you know, where he's at and he's not sure what is happening, why he can't seem to get things going and, you know, he's he's at this place in his life. And William said to him, it's obvious that you have gone over the cliff and you're hanging on just by a branch. 
But I want you to consider, maybe God is asking you to let go. Don't know how far it is to bottom. Maybe it's, the ground's just there and you find you, <laughs> you hit the ground and you're safe. Or maybe it's a long way down. But the question that he was asked is, do you trust God to have you? Wow, I tell you, to him, the way he talks about it, uh, and when he was telling me this story um, last year when we were on the way to Provincial Synod, it was like God was clearly speaking to him. And he, the verse that came to mind was uh, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And at that point, he said, yes, Lord, I believe. So he put his condo on the market. You know, one of the reasons he wasn't willing to respond because he had this huge mortgage. And, you know, I go into full-time ministry, I tell you, he knows what pastors are paid. He's a vicar's lord. <laughs> so he know, cannot meet his mortgage. So he put it on the market, and it was a terrible uh, time to put on the market, but the Lord opened the door, and he got what he was asking for, which eradicated all his debt, gave him enough to buy an HDB flat, and, you know, a little bit left over to do renovation as well. And um, he was able then, because he no longer has this mortgage, when the opportunity came up uh, to uh, apply for the position of Executive Director of Prison Fellowship Singapore, he was able to do it. And that's what he's doing now. He's serving the Lord in, in full-time ministry through Prison Fellowship, which is a wonderful organization. He actually came and he spoke. Some of you were there at that session. You may remember him. But he shares how, you know, I think what he was sharing really illustrates this point of having no other gods before. And it may be very different for you. It may not be a financial issue or, you know, hanging on to status or what you believe is holding on. But there are all kinds of ways in which you know, the question is, do you truly trust and believe in God? Are you willing to obey what He calls you to do, no matter what the cost? That's what this first commandment is about. That's what discipleship is about. Any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the word of the law, but it's also the word of the gospel because Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word, especially this word you gave so long ago but continues to endure to this day. Lord, these commandments are good, righteous, and holy, and they've been given to us to point us to you, to rid us of our deception, and to see that you are the source of all life. And only in you can we have life. Not just any old life, but Lord, abundant life. And I pray that as we enter into this year of discipleship, that each of us, Lord, will reevaluate our position. 
and consider who our God truly is. For those of us, Lord, who have erected other gods, I pray, Lord, you help us to repent and to return to you so that we may place our faith and trust in you fully from this day forward. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. Let's stand as we declare.